0: Hey guys, it's Sylvia Frost here with the podcast
1: Indies Who Sell, and me and my co-host and developmental editor, Mary Novak, have something exciting for you today. We're going to be looking at a book called Nephilim Falling by Felicia Beasley, and we're not going to be doing our usual thing where we just interview um, people. Now, we're going to be focusing on how we can help make these people's books better. And we're going to be doing this by a kind of unique critique format. We're going to be looking at just the look inside. So in this case, it's going to be the first chapter pretty much the cover and the blurb. And we're going to try and find out what are the ways that any of those elements aren't quite serving Felicia as well as they might be. All right, let's get to it. Yep. That's, that's the summary. (laughs) (laughs) so i i'm i'm curious and this is our podcast uh indies who sell and normally we've kind of mixed up the formula Our used for our old formula just to be that we would interview indies who are selling a lot and look at their books and read them and try and figure out what is it about those books that we're making them sell because i think one of the things that i've noticed um in the move to self-publishing away from traditional publishing just dominating the charts is that there are things that self-published people do that traditional published people don't do, um, and and yet they still sell. Uh, so there must be some aspect of what self-published people are doing that are grabbing people, um, and you know, and we want to find out what that is yeah. because it's a different game. And so we're just trying to figure out what are the new rules in terms of storytelling, because lots of people have spent lots of time thinking about, um, you know, cover design and blurb and price point and where to market. And there are lots and lots of answers for those questions, but there aren't answers indie specific answers for what are the kind of stories that readers are looking to pick up. Uh Um, from indie authors, right. uh, you know, beyond just genre and tropes. Um, although a little bit of that we touch on for sure. Uh, and so now we are trying to take some of that knowledge that we have mined from looking at the best selling authors and helping people who are um, trying to figure out how, like you, who want to figure out how to make their books sell. Yeah. That- um, if that makes any sense at all. <laughs> oh,
2: no, it, it totally does.
0: Yeah, it makes sense. Um, Sylvia, I think that our, um, actually I'm curious and I think our listeners will be curious about what's like one thing that you've noticed that you feel like indie um, sellers are, are doing that's different from the traditional market?
1: I think, I mean, I think the one thing that I would say is that it's a double-edged sword, what indies do. What indies do is they find something That is selling well. And then there are a lot of people who will give readers what they want in terms of that thing. Whereas in traditional published publishing books, people are always looking for what is the hot new thing. And sometimes that involves, you know, moving away from sort of these tropes. But what indie authors do really well is um create stories that appeal to emotional fantasies, right? They I mean traditional publishing people do this as well, but indie authors really I think, are often about giving readers what they want um, you know, in a sort of, in, mm-hmm. in very clear ways, whether that's romance with you know intense alpha males or um, urban fantasy, you know with a snarky female protagonist with you know superhero like powers. Or even, you know, thrillers, which sometimes can have, you know, maybe political themes that uh, traditional publishers wouldn't be comfortable with. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that there's there are ways in which indie indie authors do that. Uh, I don't know. What do you think is the answer to that question, Mary?
0: Uh, well, I don't I'm not sure what the answer is, but I do think that you've hit something about how um, indie fiction can have what I would call sort of an unabashed quality yes, that's like um, which is something that you know in the traditional world I think things like Twilight and 50 shades of gray are two examples where it was just like surprise I'm giving people exactly what they want and you didn't know that that was exactly what they wanted till I did it um, and I think that we see a lot of kind of that vibe uh, yeah. in, in the indie world as well sure and let's and let's take this over to Felicia so Felicia we looked at um, your your the first book Nephilim falling <laughs> Um, which is the first book in your Trenton Investigation series. Was this your first series, period?
2: Um, it is. Uh, it's actually my fourth book in the series. It's, it's a prequel. Um, book one doesn't oh. come out until May. And then I have two shorter novellas. Um, one is published, and it's also my reader magnet. And then I have one coming out in an anthology on the 28th of this month. Okay. Great. Sure.
0: Okay, so uh, but, but so this this series is the the main thing that you've been putting out so far, right? Okay, cool. And why don't you tell us a little bit about like the series? Um, we so we, we've apparently we've read part of the, part of the pre prequel, but what's tell us a little bit? Tell us about the series as a whole.
2: Um, okay, the series follows um, Lex Trenton, who is a uh, supernatural PI. Um, she's a half demon, um, but she doesn't really have she has tenuous connections with other demons. Her father's a demon, and her ex-boyfriend is. Um, uh, she she goes through the series, and her main goal is to find her brother. Um, he disappears, actually, at the end of Nephilim Falling. Spoiler alert. <laughs> <laughs> and um, she she's pretty much... This takes place, the first book takes place seven years later, and she's been trying to c- get connections, and she just keeps getting... Uh, Dead ends. And so she basically takes on different cases to try to get closer to finding him and meets a lot of interesting people on the way. And um, her first case, or her case in um, the first book, actually ends up being to prove the innocence of her best friend from the prequel who she did something kind of bad to. And she's trying to make up for. So, my question for you, Felicia, is what would you describe as
1: you think your book and writing and series strengths and then what are some of and branding in general? Um, and what would some of the ways that you wonder if maybe you need to improve because uh, you you sought us out. So you you can obviously feel like there might be some ways that you want to change. And I'm just curious to see what those might be along with why you think you've had some success already.
2: Okay. Um, well, one thing with the success I have had is, uh, um, Readers are connecting with my main character and some of the other characters from the books. Um, and that was my main goal, was to have a character that people want to follow, regardless of what she's actually doing. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think her voice, I'm very strong with her voice, uh, which is a double-edged sword, because it makes writing other things more difficult, because her voice starts to sneak in. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, weaknesses. Sometimes I worry that things are a little choppy, like the flow isn't um, as seamless as I would like it, both um, as a plot as a whole. And then from scene to scene, I really am weak when it comes to transitions. I feel mm-hmm. like the beginning paragraph or two of every scene is kind of like, this is how we got to this scene. And it feels really info dumpy. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> uh, um,
1: so let's see. Do we want to get started here with our with our thoughts, Mary?
0: Sure sure so um you know cover the covers the first thing that anyone sees so sylvia what would you like to say about the cover
1: yeah so i think this cover is remarkably strong it's very good it fits the genre um perfectly the graveyard background and the smoky aesthetic uh is something that is you know grabbable and popular and will get your readers um however it does miss the mark in one key way which is that right now this cover doesn't particularly stand out as your brand. While it's important that in both book and cover we meet our genre expectations, you know we it's equally important to have some branding mark that carries over your series that marks these books as yours. Um, I think so. I think there are a couple. Different easy ways you can add more brand to your book, which is incorporating, a, you know, a more unique font or taking the font you have and adding sort of flourishes that would make, mark these books as yours. Um, having some kind of special border, um, or even using a logo, or you know, even keeping the colors more consistent and pos- you know, throughout the series. Or there just needs to be something that. Um, allows me to look at these books and say, oh, this is a Felicia Beasley book, because right now there's not quite anything that hits that as strongly as it should. I mean, the books are consistent from series to series. But the problem is, is I think, you know, as we get more and more urban fantasy book covers Um, it's getting harder and harder to stand out, but if you can find a way to do that, I think you'll be able to keep the readers that you've already carved out and that'll make it easier between times of releases, the people who didn't necessarily go onto your email list or the people who follow, you know, the people that you haven't quite captured, but you want to buy the second book. If they see that book, they'll remember it, um, immediately as yours, um, and so, I mean, if I were you, I would just think about either a logo or a small flourish or something and possibly go back to my designer and say, hey, what would you charge me to just add some little, just one little thing onto these covers that just clearly marks them as mine? Um, I don't know if that makes any sense or, or what you think about that. Um, but I think these covers are very strong.
2: Okay. Um, I can talk to my cover artist. Um mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not sure. I'm I'm not designed. I'm design challenged, <laughs> so I can ask her opinion on if she can think of anything. Maybe changing the font of the name or something like that. Um, yeah.
0: And I yeah. think yeah. And the, and I think the focus being this in some ways is kind of. I'm thinking of it as like advanced cover critique. The basics are all there in a really good way. Like this is, you know, this is satisfying the genre and everything. And then it
1: looks nice. It looks um, professional. All that's great.
0: Right. In the whole, you know, in the entire range of all the different things that might possibly, like, you know, like she's saying a border uh, or, you know, the, the, the font that's, you know, some element that kind of can carry over, but just keep the good as it is because it is good.
1: Yeah. And I mean, if you don't make this change, it's not the end of the world. Of all the changes that we're and all the ideas that we're going to throw your way today, I would say this is probably the least important. <laughs> um but it, but there is something, so we just wanted to yeah. put that bug in your ear, especially if maybe, you know, all, like all of these changes are going to be what you want to take and what you want to use and what resonates with you. So we're just offering, offering stuff, and if you hear something that you think, oh, I always thought that or this makes sense, then yeah. that's the change for you.
0: Yeah. Um,
1: <laughs> okay, so do we want to move on to the, the blurb then?
0: So as you first open the book, what you see is, They say demons and angels don't mix. I say people should mind their own damn business. My brother Damien has been my rock ever since Mom left. Didn't matter to him that I was a lowly half-demon while angel blood flowed through his veins. I was his and he was mine. Um, Then if you open the blurb to the read more, but nothing lasts forever. He wants me to go to college. I'd rather fight a hundred sentinels than lead a boring, safe life hiding who I am. So when a Nephilim goes missing... I go behind Damien's back to find the teen. Maybe if I can solve the case, he'll upgrade me to his partner in crime-solving. As bodies begin to drop, I realize I'm way in, way over my head, but there's no way I'm going to admit that, not when my future hangs in the balance. Instead, I set my eyes on recruiting the help of the new kid. Lucas is arrogant, sexy, and persistently trying to get my number. He's also a Nephilim—off-limits, no matter how good he looks, flinging fireballs. Then again, I was never good at resisting temptation.
1: Yeah, so much like the cover, I think that this blurb has a lot of strengths to it. Um, and I think that there's a lot to like about it. First and foremost, it's got a really strong voice and paints a really clear picture of the protagonist's personality. Um, and that personality yeah. is one I feel will resonate with readers of urban fantasy. Uh, however, for me, the blurb does feel like it runs a little longer than it has to, and it isn't as tightly tied to the heroine's motivation as it might be. Um, I'd strongly recommend finding ways to trim this blurb, especially because that initial, like, look inside, what people have to see before they have to click, you've kind of buried your cliffhanger, right, which is that nothing lasts forever. That's the hook that keeps people reading to the next paragraph. But people don't see that in that initial thing before they click read more, um, if that makes sense. Uh, What what are you going to say, Mary?
0: Well, how does – so – Damien is her brother who disappears, and that's like the arc of the whole series. Uh, like the rest of the books are her still trying to find like he's gone now and or he's going now, and this is the the rest of the series is gonna be her trying to find him. How does Lucas fit into the big series?
2: Um, should
1: I? say spoilers yeah go i mean okay
0: so spoiler alert we'll we'll
1: warn them spoiler (laughs) alert if you want to read the books which you should please
2: fast forward this let me
0: let me ask this is lucas the main love interest of the series or is he someone that is mainly in this book
2: he is her first love and he dies at the end of the book
0: okay um so the the thing with the um my my comment to the blurb is that the basically as as Sylvia's already basically said, the writing in the blurb is really tight. You know, they say demons and angels don't mix. I say people should mind their own bad, damn business. that's perfect. fantastically like tight as far as you know, let me tell you something about what's in the book and what the tone of the book is. So that is really, really hitting. um, and what is not hitting as much for me is like a sense of what's going on in the book <laughs> uh, because we start with the brother who, and I and I kind of, you know, and he's important to the series. So there there's a, you know, there's an argument for that. Then we kind of, and so it's like, okay, so this is somehow a book about her brother. Then as we open up, it's like, this is a book about Lucas, and it's not real clear what his deal is, <laughs> um, except that he kind of sounds like a love interest. And so I, I feel like, in the length of this, I feel like as a potential reader, I'm being kind of like hinted, oh, we might go down this path. And then again, right. we might go down this path. And I would really, I, I feel like the high, one of the highest uses of these blurbs is to both intrigue, but also, and here's the path. Like, here's what mm-hmm. we're going to, you know, here's a sense of what we're going to do. And between okay. the Damien and Lucas split, it's a little hard for me to to grasp that.
1: Yeah, yeah, I think for me, the my issue with Lucas was, you say that Nephilim are off-limits, but I don't know the consequences of what will happen if she involves herself with him. So I can't really feel what that stakes are or what off-limits means. Whereas I know the stakes of her brother very clearly, which is that he wants to protect her and she wants to be a part of this magical world and that's a very clear conflict I can understand. Right. And then so because of that, she goes and tries to solve this case, it involves herself in danger. Right. Um, that is all very tight and good. But then this bit about Lucas, um, it, it feels as if it's not integrated within her main desire, which is to, um, you know, be her own person. And I think if there was a way that you could find to integrate Lucas into the arc you've already established, your blurb would be a lot tighter as a result
0: because right. and, and
2: i think he is probably integrated it's just not coming across in the blurb lucas was kind of an add-on in the blurb i mean he's an important character and he helps her with the case but the case is kind of the whole point and her right. her character arc in the book is extremely important and it's where she goes from kind of a naive um kind of girl to who's snarky and all that stuff to someone who's lost so much that she's barely holding on. Um and Lucas is a part of that, but he's not really the focus.
0: Right. And what's happening is that I would say that the blurb as it stands leaves me sincerely confused about whether I'm about to read Twilight and Lucas is the Edward and this is all about this teen getting together with her Edward or whether I'm about to read the Dresden Files and whatever happens with characters is going to happen but kind of a mystery is the heart of what's going on and i like that's the like that's the setting on the path concept it's like it sounds like you do have a pretty clear you know you've got a clear image of here's the path of the book and to try not to confuse like i don't think that i don't think that multiple things that sort of cross genres entice readers as much as they confuse them
1: I will say, though, Mary, I think hot guy love interest is a key You'll component of this genre, and yeah. it's something that people will click for. And if they think it's not going to be in the book, it's very possible they're less likely to click for it. Uh-huh. So I get where you're going, and I don't think you need to cut Lucas, but I think he needs to be – you can have, you know, sexy, mysterious Nephilim in there. In fact, I think you should It'd be a mistake not to, but it needs to be – she, you know, she's interested in this guy to piss off her brother or she's interested in him because he holds the only clue to knowing where this teen went or he just needs to have some function in the plot. Right.
0: But, um, but, I, but I really want to tack on a yes. But which is that if you're enti- if people get in, I, I, you're never going to go wrong with a hot guy uh, love interest. But if people are being enticed, thinking they're going to get a romance,
1: that's true. The, that's the spoiler a really that
0: you gave us already about where, where this romance is going to end up is going to slay people and not in a good way. Like, like you you don't go into a romance expecting an unhappy ending. You do go into, you know, you, you better have your eyes open when you go into a mystery because anybody could die at any time, and that's just the nature of mystery. So it's, again, like trying to, you know, by all means use the idea that there's going to be a hot guy, but some kind of hint of tragedy there. Um, may be helpful because you don't. You really do not want to confound romance expectations um, mm-hmm. when you're bringing them up. People, people who go in for that are going to feel supremely betrayed uh, right. and very
2: upset. I don't know if this is a concern. I, originally, I added Lucas to the blurb because it is something that's in most urban fantasy um, in the genre that I i am in um that i read and all of that usually there is a hot guy love interest and usually they're mentioned in the blurb Mm -hmm. um the cover has lucas on it i'm wondering if lucas isn't in the blurb if people will think that's damien or if they'll kind of get that there's a hot guy in this book because of the cover
1: Yeah, I think that when we get to the look inside, well, there are some some thoughts that we have about the whole Lucas Davian thing, but I'll just touch on it lightly and say that while I really love this um, arc of this protective older brother, and I think it's one that isn't done a ton, It is going to have slight issues in how you go about it because in some ways Damien is taking a lot of the positions that usually a love interest does in this prequel, right? He's like protective over her. He is, you know, an attractive guy. I presume, you know, he like, and we'll get more into this in the look inside, but I can see how that would be a problem. But I also You know, on the other hand, I don't I for me, a cover's job is not to illustrate the book. A lot of people get into this idea that their cover needs to have the exact right hair color. And, you know, it should be a perfect scene. And, you know, I think even if people think that that's Damien on the cover, it is like that is the smallest fry of problem that you could have because a clinch. (laughs) Right. There don't what people want with a cover is it's a promise of the kind of story they're not going to they're going to get. It doesn't have. I mean, in an ideal world, yes, all the details would be right. And that is a certain professionality level of polish that you can reach. But I would I always, always, always fall on the side of having a cover that entices and hints at genre and, you know, feeling over a cover that, you know, has all the detail ducks in a row. Well, let's move on to the look inside now because we've got more than enough to say about that, and we're already 40 <laughs> minutes into the conversation. We uh, looked at your first chapter, and then we made comments on it in line um, as well that that are kind of, you know, like an editor would make. Although none of this is really about grammar or, or line. It's all what Mary would and you know I would do if we were developmentally editing the piece. So concerns about story and what might what might be keeping readers from read on and reading on and that sort of thing. So I've shared that with you. If, okay. all right, so let's get going on the look inside.
0: Okay. So I'd like to uh, start with that and talk about chapter one as a whole in chapter one, um, uh, Lex is with her brother who is supposed to go follow or capture this toad demon and, uh, a swindling toad demon, no frog, frog demon, no less. And uh, she decides she ignores him, the him trying to keep her safe and goes tearing after the um, frog demon as you do. And a lot of this is sort of the, you know, her chase and then the fight. In other words, the first chapter is sort of action, 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 action. And um, which is certainly a, a, a it's a good thing, but it's important that it not be the only thing, especially in a first chapter, where you're trying to hook people into kind of the intrigue of the world, and the intrigue of um, what's important to your main characters, it's it's not clear why they're hunting the demon. It's not clear what'll happen if they don't catch him. Um, it's like there's there are a lot of things about Lex and Damien's situation that some of which could be made more clear. And because we don't know any of them, it really is just girl in car, goes after a frog demon and uh, has a fight. And it's Mm -hmm. like, well, why is... There's there's kind of a layer that I think... um, well, you you do add that layer in subsequent chapters. So my feeling is that maybe the, the goal here was to have it be really kind of vibrant action because because I, I know that you do get to like the, the motivations of people. But in stitching together, sorry, in stitching together a first um, chapter like this and trying to hook people, um, why things are happening is still important. and it's you, you want you, you don't want to bog down the action but it still needs to be there. It still needs to be, what are the stakes?
1: Yeah, and I'm going to um, echo that with just a couple of points. I, You know, looking at the reviews that you got, um, th- the strengths, you know, talk about the voice and the snark and the humor and the characters and those are some of the strengths, but Some weaknesses that I noted was people saying things it took me a little while to get into. It was a good read. I was a little unsure at the beginning of the book whether I would like it. So I feel like these are things that readers are responding to the first chapter, not quite hooking them as well as it might. And I want to agree with Mary that I think that that is because this is action without context. We have a little bit of it, which is that she is tired of being stuck in the car And doing her homework, but we don't really get to experience that what that feels like. Um, I think you spend a lot of time talking about snow in the first chapter. Um, And, you know, we don't really. If, if all that, if even a couple of those times where you spent talking about snow, you were showing me what a demon run casino looks like and how that's different from a regularly run casino. If you were telling me more, if you were describing to me more the demon from the first moment we see him, um, because I first I wasn't sure is this demon uh, an does he have frog parts or is he just a human? Um and you know, if you were showing me what it feels like that first moment when she's um you know, in the car and sees the demon, I think it's a perfect illustration of how you spend there are times when you spend too much time on things that. Maybe aren't as gripping and then gloss over the things that are gripping, like the sentence, just as Damien shouldn't have been surprised when I flew out the car at the first sight of the demon ribbiting out of the back door of the bustling demon run casino. That's a really thick sentence and a really cool moment that you've compressed. And I would love to see her having her homework in her lap and looking up and pressing her hand against a frosted over window and seeing the dark shape of the demon scurry out of the back door. And then I want to be with her as she sees him jump the first time. And I want to feel her gut, you know, clench at that. And I want to be in that world. I'm not as interested in the February wind biting against her cheeks or how much salt they're putting on the parking lot. Um, if that makes sense. Um, and, and and I think, yeah, so I think that if we have the, and I want to know why she cares, I want why she cares to be threading through every single sentence. I want every sentence that, like, every time she looks at that frog demon, she thinks about how her brother doesn't think she can handle it and strategizes around that motivation. Because you have it there, and it's strong, and it's something readers are responding to, but it's just not as consistent as it might be, if that makes any sense.
2: Mm -hmm. What do you think, Felicia?
1: I didn't realize I said
2: snow so much. (laughs) 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 Um, Yeah, I I think that would be interesting to – to kind of slow down the beginning um, to, and then definitely to add more motivation. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: And we're also, we're, another thing, there's a category I'd like to talk about, kind of moving on from the action question, which is signifiers of quality. And one thing that I think is, a, to me, strikes me as a huge signifier of positive quality is some of the very specific and original choices that you've made. It's not just a demon it's a um, so sw- demon. And it's not even just a frog demon it's a swindling frog demon like how evocative is that I love the kind of layers of th- this is telling me that there's a lot of depth going on in this world it comes up in later chapters when we get like really nuanced points about angels disguising their odor with mouthwash and uh, and uh, and like so that to me is a, a big um, signifier that something at, if I keep going with this book, something kind of unique is going to happen. This is not just demons and angels in some sort of like very broad um, definition, but that there's going to be kind of nuance. And I feel like that's a big signifier of a positive quality that 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 first image promises. Uh, yeah, and that's really good.
1: Yeah, um, I, I I do want to comment on the first sentence. Because a first sentence is like one of the most important parts of a book. Um, It's what's going to get the reader to read on. Um, I'll read it. Telling a girl she has to stay in the car and study while you and your bestie hunt down a swindling frog demon is like expecting a four-year-old to eat her broccoli while you eat a giant slice of chocolate cake. So there's, there's some really strong points to this sentence. For the first, I mean, this is the kind of humor that your reviewers talk about liking, and that's snark, right? You deliver snarky demon, you know, female protagonist in all in the first sentence, right, which is what people want. So that is great. But here is, there are two issues. Um, I don't think it's a super clear sentence, to start mm-hmm. the book, I had to read it a couple of times to parse out what you meant. And that's for two reasons. The first is the you throws me off. The you is you always refers to the reader, right? Because mm-hmm. and but I but it, in this case, it refers to Damien. So uh, Right in the first beat, I'm expected to put myself not in the shoes of the protagonist, but the protagonist's brother, who I don't quite know. And so in my head, I'm wondering, like, well, why am I? And I think the second person can be a very effective narrative tool, especially for a snarky um, urban fantasy heroine. But in the first sentence, it requires more effort than I think I I want to use.
2: Um, Uh, Can I clarify something? Yeah, sure. Um, The you in that first sentence is is to the reader, not to Damien. So well, I might but, need to make that but, clear. but
0: I but I also read it so we it, the effect that it had on both of us separately mm-hmm. was that I also thought that whoever was telling me about telling a girl she has to stay in the car um, was the person doing the telling not the right. person being told and so it's uh, so the, the, the but that's not what you intended that's not what's right, going on. Uh, yeah, but, so it did, but, but it did, but it did have that, uh, you know. But that's a possible effect that it can have.
1: Right, right. Well, I guess the thing is, is as a reader, I don't hunt down swindling frog demons <laughs> on the regular. So for for the author to tell me, oh, expecting a girl to stay in the car while you hunt down frog demons, and I'm like, when in earth have I ever expected that? <laughs> Like, you know, what I mean, that would that's not on my list of things I expect to happen to me into it in a day. Yeah. So it's already causing a moment of and that's why I assumed that it's not that the you is Damien. Right. But hmm. the person that she's talking about in that sentence is Damien. Right. Damon's is the one that's going off hunting frog demons, as I understand it. Or is that not right. correct? Well, that's um, correct? That's correct. Right. So mm-hmm. in some ways, you're 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 assigning an action of Damien to me, the reader, who has never and once in right. her life hunted down a frog demon um so that's why it's confusing so i might play i think that there i would not have utilized second person in that way for that first sentence um and i think it is also slightly too long of a first sentence there's a lot going on the girl is staying in our car someone's hunting frog demons but it's not the girl maybe it's me the reader no it's not me the reader i don't do that who the hell is doing that and then it's um, sorry if that was that was a little direct, <laughs> but um, and then um, <laughs> no, <it's not. laughs> and then uh, and then I then you've got the nice bit of humor, which is expecting a four year old to eat her broccoli. But it's not just a toddler eating vegetables. I like the specificity, but one of the specificity is a double edged sword in that it takes it takes energy for an author, for a reader to be in a specific place. Right. And so every like. A specific thing that you add to a sentence to make it longer takes work. And so all of those things together make a sentence that I think isn't serving you as well as others might. Um, if that makes any sense at all.
0: Right. Mm-hmm. And then kind of and this takes an abrupt turn in a way, but continuing the idea of things that signify quality, that's that. Generally speaking, like the specificity of your characters, the specificity of what's going on in the book—it's not just a demon bar; it's a demon casino. Yeah, that's, that's cool. That thank are, God it
1: wasn't a bar. Yeah, thank
0: you. You know, those, so 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 those things like you own all of that creation, and that's to me kind of a blazing signifier as I'm checking an author out—that there's going to be enough to keep me interested through the book. So that's a signifier quality. On the a flip side of that, one thing that again also that stood out to both of us was there are places where um, Lex will make Lex or other characters will make kind of pop culture references. Um, At one point, she directly compares the Toad demon to Toad in the first X Files movie. And another one that stood out to me was later on a character Peter is introduced, and she compares him to sort of like like a, it's, she mentioned Superman and Dumbledore and um, let me, uh, I, I'd like to like exactly what she says was kind of important for this. For me those, I wanted to caution that pop culture references like that are also a double-edged sword and that there are times when they can be that to me they're a signifier kind of anti-quality. Um, in the Toad case, you have created this wonderful Toad demon. Toad in the X-Men, X-Men isn't a demon. And um, so you've created this wonderful Toad demon and all the details. And I get that in many ways, he's going to be kind of similar to Toad from the X-Men. <laughs> I get that. But there's, you don't really need to bring it up. Um, for, one, for one thing, and this kind of took me aback, because that movie was made probably the year this character was born. Um, and I find myself frequently reminding clients of these horrible truths um, well, t- because someone... uh, because that like this maybe she's seen it and maybe she hasn't I don't really care, but to realize right. that a lot of seventeen year olds haven't uh because it is like to them this is the olden days um right. uh, I will raise my hand
1: and say I haven't seen it, and I'm not 17. (laughs) I'm
2: Uh, 25. (laughs) Uh, I don't know if this came across in the book. Um, It is 1999. It takes place um, in the past of our past because the first book takes place in our present, and I don't think I got that across.
0: I see. Okay, and and I hate, oh, God, I really, maybe (laughs) maybe we should cut this out, but the movie came out in 2000. Oh. So, um, oh,
2: I shouldn't
0: say that Like, <laughs> that. like frankly, none of that <laughs> matters as oh, much as... Oh, no, no, as... it's 2009, not
2: 1999. Oh, okay. It's not 2007.
0: <laughs> uh, but, but none of that matters <laughs> yeah. as much as... I don't really get more out of your wonderful Toad Demon creation by knowing that he's like a similar character in a movie. Like, that doesn't really... <laughs> You've already added so much to him that... I, I don't I kind of I don't need the comparison. The comparison isn't adding something that interests me or makes me laugh. And I think that that is part. Like I feel like pop culture references when you when you go to some of the authors that are you know really making their trade out of using these in this kind of very devastating way, there's usually something very appropriate and sort of surprising about the reference. So here we have appropriate, because they're very similar, but there's nothing surprising about it. Um, later on, when she compares Peter to Superman and Dumbledore, um, I saw—I at least saw that as kind of similar. Um, even though he was human, I thought of him as a reincarnation of Superman, or maybe Dumbledore. He worked magic, saving Damien's life countless times. We owed him a debt he could, we could never pay back. But and i and I thought, but but those are really Superman and Dumbledore seem to me to be really generic pop culture references who don't even have that much in common. like I have to kind of work to think about what they have in common or what she's trying to narrow down on by saying that he's Superman or maybe Dumbledore. And then, yeah, I, yeah, and sorry. so so the thing is that the this isn't sinking the whole book to have mm. this, but it's also not hitting me in like a witty clever way which is how i like my like the pop cult the buffy kind of stuff that Joss Whedon oh. is so good at like there's there's usually a little bit more to it than just reaching for the name and it's uh, and i just would caution that to me that kind of suggests it's it's to me it's a suggestion that well maybe she can't think of her own examples which is not the case at all because you totally do like you've you've got your own Toad demon swindler, uh, who I'm dying to. Well, I guess he's dead now or something. But uh, you know, I'm like, I would love to know more about this guy. They're <laughs> like always
1: I, alive in our hearts, Mary. They're always <laughs> alive in our hearts.
0: But, um, but you know, but this—that's yours. And there's a, there's just kind of a level of bringing in pop culture where it makes it look like you're sort of stepping on your own stuff.
1: Yeah, I want to jump in really quick um, and say that one thing that you have reviews that note that they love this pop culture stuff, and people love pop culture stuff. So I am not in any way, shape, or form saying cut pop culture things. But I think there is a way to do it better. Um, And that, I think, has to do a lot with how to use metaphor in general.
0: Yeah. And so, Sylvia, you you told me yesterday about um – a a way to understand metaphor that I'd never heard before in really life. So could you remind me what it was?
1: (laughs) Yeah, this is just genius. Um, this is from anyone who wants to know how to write, which is all of us deep in our hearts. It should go and listen to all of the Odyssey writing workshop podcasts. It's this workshop that happens in New Hampshire. Um, and it's just the woman who runs it is just a genius. Um, and, uh, She's got this thing to say about metaphor, which I, I can find it, um, and here it is. I'm just going to read it. It's a little long, but it's just so worth it. Okay. Uh, this is uh, copyright uh, Jean Cavellos. so hopefully, I hope I won't get in trouble for reading this, but I I'm think not it's making fair. I, I, think think it's that, so. I think it's just one thing,
0: it's fair use.
1: All right, fair um, use. Yeah, i defrocked
0: lawyer, so I know these things.
1: Okay, so um, here it is. Writing tip number four, similes and metaphors. Here's what she has to say. Uh, I find that many authors write weak similes and metaphors. Part of the reason for this is that they don't understand the purposes of figurative language. Similes and metaphors can serve several different purposes, such as creating atmosphere and, and introducing symbolism. But the main purpose of these techniques is to help describe something that's difficult to describe. The author thinks... Okay, I can't really describe X, so instead I'll compare it to Y, with which the readers are very familiar, so they can see X more easily. That can work very well, but many times writers compare X to a Y that we aren't familiar with, so X is not illuminated by comparison. This strange Y is distracting or confusing rather than helpful. Other problems are that Y might not be a true parallel to X, or that author compares X to several different things, and those things create contradictory images. For example, Simon leapt to his feet like a man who had just emerged from a time warp. And she says, I have no idea how a man who has just emerged from a time warp would jump to his feet. So this doesn't help me picture the way Dexter leapt to his feet. Instead, I'm distracted by the idea of time warps and a man emerging from them, which has nothing to do with the story. So um, and here's an example of a really good one, a metaphor example. And I drove my hand into her chest, into a warm, fleshy glove, felt the ribs scrape over my palm, felt the beating of the heart. And um, Jean says, I like this fleshy glove comparison very much. I know what a glove feels like, and that allows me to feel a very gross sensation. But the scraping of the ribs con- oh, contradicts the fleshy glove image. The author needs to keep the imagery consistent. Um, so, you know, I think let, like you had this one line in your uh, book where you said he roared as he charged like charged like some rhino amphibian hybrid. And so I, that's, I think, a good example of something that isn't quite hitting the metaphorical mark as well as it might be, because A, I don't know what a rhino-amphibian hybrid might be, A B and then it's a rhino and an amphibian, which are two very different things, so I'm left trying to parse out what that is. And as a result, I'm not quite getting as much of a punch from the metaphor as I as I might get, Um I think that on the one hand, the metaphor to toad seems like it's a great metaphor because it is um, it is a true parallel. Right. This toad demon is like another toad demon. And um, it is something that if readers are familiar with, they'll get that warmth in their stomach of like, oh, I'm in on this joke. Right. I get this author, this author speaking to me. But I think the third is a C that we haven't talked about any of these things, which is that. I think we want to make sure that our metaphors aren't too broad. Like metaphors are great when they're talking about specific things or specific moments, right? But if you try to make a metaphor for how an entire character is, then it feels like it can cheapen the experience, right? Because it's like you're you're you know you're relying on almost too much. You know what I mean? Um, if that makes any sense at oh, yeah. all. And and I also want to say too that. There are ways that we can evoke um other other uh you know pop culture references without nodding at it directly. So um you know like for example for this uh you know it, Instead of saying he smiled wide like the terrifying smiling man of creepypasta, which I've never seen it, but I Googled it. And then I just looked at the picture and then I described what that looked like, which is he smiled wide and the way the sides of his mouth seemed to stretch all the way to the corner of his eyes was terrifying, right? Mm-hmm. And so that way we get the same feeling of it. But if I don't know, if there's someone who doesn't know what terrifying smiling man creepypasta is, they don't feel totally alienated. Yeah. Um right.
0: And I, I think if you look at, like as as, as speaking, I think that if we looked at um, Joss Whedon, the master of this kind of stuff, especially on Buffy, um, I think that my sense is that a lot of the time, what he would be doing is making the reference unexpected by sort of making the obvious reference at one step removed. Uh, my 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 instinct is that if he was gonna, like, if if he was going to refer to the the frog demon, and you know, and then the X Men frog, that might involve something that brings up like a moment between him and Wolverine or something like yes, kind of taking yes. it a step away. So that's, and I also, another kind of instinct I have is that if you really like this kind of humor, I think, and want to use it, I think it'll never hurt anybody to sort of study, like really do what, you know, make yourself a little worksheet out of some of the references that you feel like were just so brilliant and so funny, and kind of break them down, because they mm-hmm. can be broken down. Like they're, you know, like what's going on with them? And uh, and that I think that might make it a little easier to kind of absorb some of like these like techniques that people who are so good at this have, uh, have created.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, um, I, I want to say sometimes this, I think there are even ways like, I think you would want to be careful that you're not using metaphor as a shortcut, basically, because sometimes it can feel like a shortcut to get around saying what you actually want to say. Like, and sometimes actually, you know, like I, there's this line where you say, you know, the, the words on the toad look like skin cancer words, which is great. Cause a, I first Googled that cause I was like, skin cancer words aren't a thing. And then I Googled it. I was like, Oh God, they are a thing. Oh no. <laughs> and and I looked at them, and they, you know, one of the descriptions I read was that like they're crusted over, and they're like gross, and like, you know, if instead of saying, you know, they look like skin cancer warts, you said, um, you know, like his hands were covered with warts, peeling, crusted, and more yellow than any planter's wart she'd ever seen. Then I'm like, oh, that's a visceral sense of disgust. Um, and you know, I understand maybe metaphors helping you keep the pace of this quick. Um, which and and you don't want to replace every metaphor with sort of a detailed, uh, more detailed. And, you know, and I do want you to keep some of this pop culture stuff because I know it's resonating with readers. But I think that there is some balancing that can be done to help reach new people.
2: Sounds good. Um, (laughs) (laughs) uh, With the pop culture references, it was it was a way for me to show her her character without just coming out and saying it. I know yeah. later I use it more in dialogue when there's actual people talking rather than using it as metaphors, but I I think I'm going to go through and look at every time I do that and see if um and then uh, compare it to what we I just learned from what you just told me yeah. um to see <laughs> to, to to check each one to see which ones are actually working and which ones need to be reworked.
1: Right. Yeah, it's tough. I mean, I don't have it mastered either um i mean i i you know i it's uh, i was thinking i was talking with mary about this and we were just saying that writing is just like a letter and it just goes on forever <laughs> and you're like oh yeah i reached a new step and then you look up and you're like oh jesus <laughs> when <will> this end? <laughs> um, but it's sure a fun climb she says with a happy straight <laughs> smile on her face Well,
0: we have gone uh, on for an impressively long time We have. um, So uh, I I did have one
1: more thing I wanted to say. Okay,
0: so here you go. (laughs)
1: Sorry, I promise. Um, I think there is one really key ingredient that you're missing in this first chapter that is more than anything else that I've said. What's going to keep people from reading on? Um, And that is, I think that you really need to add more visual. You need to I mean, one thing. And Mary asked that question of what is the key ingredient to what is selling in indie books. The answer that I almost said, but didn't is visual writing. This is what I see as, you know, a story can have all kinds of faults, but if people can picture it, then they're like a billion times more likely to get into the scene. And I think a lot of the first descriptions that you have in that opener are the biting winds of February cut my cheek, the stench of swamp sneakers slipped on ice patches. Um, You know, I don't really see the scene happening in front of me as it's happening. And I get that you want more, you know, sensual descriptions. You want to feel these other senses. But I think the ratio of those to sight always, especially in indie fiction, I think that there's room. um, And traditionally, like as as your chops level up, you know, there's room to maybe not be as visual. But in indie world, I think vision is king um and i really need to see this demon run casino there's points in the fight scene where you say you know toad came at me from different angles but that feels a little bit like he's divorced from the scenery around him like is he using the is they're using a tree you know if you said it's 10 by 10 clearing i mean you have moments of this of of really nice visual stuff but they tend to be micro um it mm-hmm. tend to be like her looking at a footprint or you know and even the sense sense stuff is micro it's cutting against her cheek um and, and there are moments especially in the fight scene of the tongue wrapping around the neck is a really good example of a visual package um you know a visual thing that you were work, that works really well um that i can see that i can feel that i can picture um but uh especially that opening i need to really know what it looks like and and i don't um, I was,
2: um that's actually my biggest weakness is, is setting and uh, scene, getting the uh, readers into the scene. Um, it's something I've always struggled with that I'm trying to get better on. And it's funny because the advice that I've been hearing, and I think the problem is that I'm going mostly to traditionally published authors on this, is to use the other senses more than sight because sight is more of the easy thing. Mm-hmm. But I think what you're saying about um, being able to visualize it um, rather than uh, all the other senses as well is more important, especially in indie fiction. So I think I need to pick up some more indie books and do some. Settings. Yeah,
1: I, I think it, I think if you think of it like a meal, right? Like uh, the visual setting is like the um, is like the meat, and then the senses are like the flavor. So it'd be really boring just to – I mean, actually, I, you know, if you just, like, cooked a slab of meat without any seasoning it at all, you'd be like, oh, this is okay, I guess, which is what some – many indie books are like, right? Mm -hmm. Um, But then if you were to, you know – but then if you – but if you were to just add flavors without as much meat, you might feel like I'm still a little hungry and confused. I don't know who feels confused after a hamburger, but sometimes I do. Um, So – And I I think – I think two traditionally published authors. It's that thing again about the latter skill set. Like as as you get more and more skilled with your storytelling, um, you know, I think that you're able to paint more with fewer words visually. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah.
0: And I have a sort of a different but adjacent view of this. Um, I've said a number of times on these podcasts that I'm not a visual person. Uh, but I've worked with enough people who are to have a, a little bit of a sense of what, I, what it's like. Um, and first of all that I, I do think Sylvia is right that so far most of, just to clarify most of the indie book, the indie books that we've read for the podcast and therefore read very closely they ha- they have indeed tended to be very visual. Uh, like mm-hmm. we, we come back to how good the descriptions are and stuff. Well, not all of us are visual, and I refuse to assume that we're all doomed if we're not. Uh,
2: <laughs> I, I will say, Mary, I'm not visual at all. Yeah, I don't imagine yeah, what's so, going on when I read books, so it's so, hard. To so, so, so,
0: Felicia, we are sisters in this. But here's, <laughs> I'm not visual and, either. Uh, <laughs> Bull, you're a cover designer. I'm not. It's, it's a lie. I'm really
1: not. I have okay. to remind myself. I'm like, you I don't just, care what you they're just, wearing. You just
0: want to be with the cool. It's okay, Sylvia, you're cool too. You want to be with Whatever. the cool kids who say that they aren't Stop physical. Prying it's on like my how everybody has to be an introvert now. Anyway, so here's my one. Uh, so far, as far as like me trying to conquer this in myself, I can say that I think that earlier in the podcast Sylvia hit on something that has been the most helpful to me for managing to wedge any freaking visual detail that I can into my stories which is to turn to google image search of anything that strikes my fancy and go look at it Mm -hmm. um I did this once with caterpillars I had a story where I wanted these like hell beast caterpillars so I kept going and finding like just random images, these perfectly innocent caterpillars, you know, that magnify, you know, and then I'd be like describing the pincers. For me, that was a way to kind of level up. Sylvia was giving an example of doing that with the skin cancer warts. That (laughs) instead of, no, seriously, that that's exactly. I know,
1: that's what I did, yeah. That's
0: exactly the thing to do if you don't have a mental file that's like, what a skin cancer warts look like? And instead of just settling for. The kind of coverall image, which is already a good start. Uh, like skin cancer wards, it does already cover a lot of turf. But with a case like that, go do a search and look at what you're seeing, and then describe that. You don't have to have mm-hmm. it all. The visual people have it all in their head already, and it like pops up like a movie. They kind of can't, like that. So they jealous. can't picture. They can't mm-hmm. picture how you could see it any other way, because it's like just. You know, charting this movie in your head and writing down what you see, and that's how they get their description. And we're not like that. But one way that you can start to approximate it is to choose the images that you like, go look at them, and embellish your own description with what you see, or like the coolest parts of what you see, or the grossest parts. So that's at least one exercise that we non visual people can try that might benefit
2: us. <laughs> that's genius, actually. I, yeah. yeah.
0: Well, cool. Yeah. Cool beans. Cool. Well, let us um, end on that happy yeah. note. <laughs> yeah,
2: I think
1: that's all. I mean, do you have any questions or was there anything that you thought we would hit on that we missed? That seems unlikely considering how long <laughs> we blabbered, but may as well throw that out there. Um,
2: for, the, uh, for the subsequent scenes, were those better on... Hooking and having the motivation. Yes, yes, they were. We read.
0: So I, yeah, I read the first three chapters and um and 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 when you when you finally can see the notes that we made, I um I think we I know that I made notes and I think Sylvia made notes.
1: I made tons of notes.
0: You will be you will be wealthy. (laughs) I've covered a
1: tenth of what I talked about. But some of those
0: (laughs) notes are indeed like I made like some of the places I was pointing out where you do exactly what I wish you were doing in chapter one. Like, where you are kind of establishing, here's their backstory, here's the, like, here's the connection. He's, the first chapter doesn't tell me that he's in his 30s and she's in her teens and they are brother and sister. And so I really Mm. wasn't getting that. And so, but then you do tell it. Like, you have some great paragraphs that really do the kind of work um, later on that I would love to see some of in the first chapter, too. Okay. Yeah,
1: I mean, I guess our so to to finish overview, the three notes are for the look inside. One, um, you know, thinking carefully about metaphor. Two, thinking very carefully about motivation. And I want to see motivation. I want to make sure that you're always keeping in mind what does this character want. How are they being kept from getting it right? And then and and have that really color how they're seeing and interacting with the world around them at all times Um, and and having the reader be aware of that, especially in the first chapter. And uh, three, making sure that you're able to give clear visual descriptions that allow the reader to picture what's important about the world around them, not necessarily. So what important being the magical elements, the conflict elements, the stuff that's interesting. Um, About and that shows something about the world. Um, Ideally, I mean, we want to see the mundane elements too, but the magical elements are really quite, that's where it's at. Um, So yeah, that's, that's, that's it. (laughs) I'm done. I promise to God.
2: (laughs) Well, thank you. I've, I've got a lot of notes and I will look over those, those line edit, well, your notes in the, the three chapters. And I'm looking forward to that. Thank you Sweet. guys Come on. Oh, you're so much. All right. Real. Thank you. Thank you for, Thank you for enduring. Yeah. <laughs>